So for the two weeks before the weekend away last weekend, Alice was uh, taking us through uh, a, a biblical and her, her and Chris's sort of where they're up to with the topic of sexuality. And today she's going to be just uh, responding some, to some questions that have been asked during that process. So I'm going to pray for her and then I'll hand over to her to lead us through it. So Holy Spirit, we pray. Father, we pray for um, the gift that you've given Alice of wisdom and insight to to be at large as ever today as she shares. Would you give us uh, understanding and insight? Would you, would you speak to us today through uh, what she says? And I pray that we would, we would um, see Jesus in this. Amen. Great. So uh, thank you for people who sent in questions and uh, off the back of those first two talks. And I'm going to read out what the questions were. And then actually the best way we thought to uh, respond to them was um, it's really in the form of, 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 one, of one talk. Uh, so Alice is going to teach in a minute or, or speak in a minute. And, um, and that's really looking to answer those or respond to uh, those questions. So I'll read them all out. Here we go. What do the letters LGBTQ plus stand for and what do they mean? Can the trajectory of the biblical narrative be understood as from procreating relationships via Jesus to now including non-procreating relationships? The Trinity consists of three persons who are the same but different. Does gender rather than personality difference regarding Adam and Eve matter? Are we in danger of being divisive over one word in the way there was a schism between East and West Christianity over one word? Were Jonathan and David in the Bible gay? If the centurion's servant Jesus healed was his gay lover or his sexual concubine, why doesn't Jesus tell him to stop having sex too? Why are people okay and generally accepting of LGBTQ+, etc., until we talk about marriage? Can Christians really be accepting, inclusive and non-judgmental of the LGBTQ plus community if they draw a line concerning gay marriage? How can we as a church community parents, carers, adults, engage with our young people in the whole area of sex and sexuality in a way that is both helpful to them and in keeping with Jesus' way. Who are more on the margins of society than the LGBTQ plus community? How can I be supportive of my LGBTQ plus friends and then not when marriage is on the table? Is civil partnership okay? How can I love people well and retain my convictions that marriage is between a man and a woman? Great. So thanks for those questions. They're all really, you know, they're the questions of our time, aren't they? And, uh, and the questions of our hearts and of our, that are important to us. So, um, Alice, over to you. Um, yeah, as I say, the, the overwhelming feeling or intuition I got from the questions is, is just real compassion, a real desire to live and love well in this world. And that really, I think, reflects the heart of hope, I hope, and the heart of the more we get to know God who is compassionate, the more we move in compassion and we see that, that Jesus lived in that, that place as well. Yesterday morning, Benj, our 11-year-old son, ran our local 5K. I just thought you'd be proud of your godson there. Yeah, yeah. So we did that classic where the night before, what Sunday, Saturday night's like I'd love to run a 5K. Friday night. So I did that thing where I didn't look up anything apart from just register him. I didn't even know if he could. He's 11. I wasn't going to run. Um, and anyway, I turn up with him, ready to go, nine o'clock. And it's like, yeah, he's 11. He can run on his own. He doesn't need a responsible adult. So I was like, when I was picturing this idea, I was like, yeah, I, I've got my nice shoes. I can sit and have a flat white while he's doing his like 30 minute um, run. Oh my gosh, when I turned up, I was literally obsessed with the fact I let my 11-year-old son be with a pack of strangers for half an hour. It's the first time in his life. He's always been with someone I know, whether it's friends or adults. He's never been on his own with a... I was literally so my heart in my mouth the entire time I couldn't rest at all. I was obsessed with his well-being. I did what I never do. I'm really righteous about car parking, but I parked in the disabled bay because there was only one left in the whole of Ashton Court and area because, you know, people who do 5Ks walk or they cycle. They don't take a car. I didn't really think about that one. Anyway, I did that wrong, so I'm really sorry if anyone really wanted that bay between, like, 
15 and about 9.45 a.m. on Saturday morning. And, and I also wrecked my shoes because I, I realized I could find a halfway point to check he was okay. So I was like traipsing up this kind of thing. I was, I was literally like obsessed over his well-being and say, and, and, and kind of safety. Anyway, when I saw him, I was so proud. He was aiming for a sub 30 minutes. It's a hilly one, those who know the Ashton Court Park run. And he did 29 minutes and like 30 seconds. First ever, first ever park run on his own. He was alive. He was happy. He was quite sweaty. It was great. And, um, I just want us, that is the relational lens through which we frame everything. God is absolutely obsessed with our well-being and our human flourishing. And he knows we're vulnerable. We don't think we are. 11-year-olds don't know they're vulnerable. He knows we're vulnerable. He knows, in fact, the biblical narratives around the Eden narratives are actually humans are described, especially in the Psalms, reflecting back on the Genesis narratives as naive, as childlike. We're designed to rule, but we need wisdom to rule. And there are two ways we can find that, in partnership with God or ruling in our own wisdom. So... Everything we're going to talk about now is framed through that intensely obsessive relational lens towards well-being. The whole of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is actually, true theology is about, you, you don't really get a statement of faith anywhere. You get some logical arguments in Romans, but all of it is really about how God relates to people and that's how we know what he's like. Theology, the presumption the study of God, the theologos, is really watching how God relates to humans. And then from that, we see what he's like. So I want to speak as a Christian into these issues. The word Christian is a complex word. I've thought about it a lot. I don't actually call myself a Christian really at all. I call myself a follower of Jesus, but I've literally got no time. Follower of Jesus just takes longer than Christian. So that's why I'm going to use the word Christian in this talk. For those who are listening to this, either online in the future, now, or in this room, and you would not describe yourself as a Christian, as someone who follows or believes in Jesus, I want you to understand this is an internal global conversation amongst two billion Christians. This is something that does not make sense. The wisdom of God is foolishness if you have not encountered the power and love of God. We have to go through the barrier of a complete metamorphoso in order to enter into the logic of the kingdom. So the priority for anyone who doesn't know God is to get to know God, is to know how deeply we're loved, how relentlessly we're pursued. For us in the West, that changes everything. We stop being chemical accidents kept alive by a dying star and realize that before the beginning of time, we're created in God's mind with care, beauty, and intentionality. In the words of Paul, we're God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works of faith, which God created in advance for us to do. This is a change of mindset. It's a repentance. From this point on, we see everything differently, and as a result, we live differently. That said... And I think we've had some interesting conversations about the relationship between theology and culture. The complexity within our cultural moment in the post-Christian West is that we have a complex and entangled relationship with our Christian past. It's, it's, it's unique in that, con- uh, sort of not continentally, but I don't like the word West very much, but, but, but nations that are bonded together through a certain shared inheritance of cultural values have a complex relationship with a Christian past and we have to name that that comes into this conversation if we don't name that we're we're kind of naive about our roots so many of our cultural values are rooted in our Christian history I'm going to give you one current example it's well documented by secular commentators that the gay rights movement particularly in America which spread across the west Um, is that the gay revolution was won culturally because of a strategic change of approach. As a starting point to understand this, there's loads of work done on this, but you can refer to the Walking the Transgender Movement Away from the Extremists by Jonathan Rauch, an article I mentioned last time. It will be in the bibliography from last week. 
from two weeks ago, and also Any Work by Andrew Sullivan, who's a thoughtful and engaging gay New York Times columnist and writer who's mentioned in Ralph's article. So initially, the gay community were wanting to be recognised in America in a number of ways, both in terms of law and their place in society, despite being different, in inverted commas. However, this wasn't proving successful with mainstream American public. The gay revolution was won when the gay community changed their strategic approach, and they actually started not to define themselves as different, but as the same. We are the same as everyone else. We want the same things as everyone else. We want marriage, we want family, a successful career, a home like everyone else. And when the mainstream American public recognised that the gay community didn't want to be accepted on the grounds they were different, but on the grounds they were the same, the American public was easily won over in what is widely regarded as the most successful social revolution ever. The complexity for us as Christians, of course, was that essentially the gay community were intelligently and perceptively recovering the beauty, power, resilience and successful nature of the Christian marriage where to all intents and purposes, culturally, it had been ditched as an outdated institution. Do you understand that? Do you understand what happened? We ditched it culturally, and here was a movement that understood its value and recovered it. That and some royal weddings actually really helped. I remember Kate Kate Williams' wedding, the, the mood over marriage changed. It was those two things. We now find ourselves in a situation where marriage has been recovered as a vehicle for social good, but in a cultural context which has cut off, denied or ignored the very roots of this marriage, it's essentially distinctly Christian worldview. And I've got my um, amazing (laughs) helper slash designer who's going to do a little visual image. Glamorous assistant, that was the words we were looking for. So, I'm, this is a cultural hat on I'm going to put now. I'm not in any way claiming this is divinely inspired. But I believe the trans revolution, which is currently the grip of the culture war is over the trans issue, the gay revolution has been won culturally, um, will be won in the same way. This is my prediction. When the pendulum swings, so listen carefully to this because it's a complicated idea. When the pendulum swing of the trans movement moves back from its radical ideology of constructing endless gender identities and simply returns to the gravitational centre of the male and female, along with the following rhetoric, trans people are the same as everyone else, we want the same thing as everyone else, and like everyone else, we simply want to be able to inhabit this world with, the co- with, with congruence this male and female world like everyone else. Can you understand what, what's happening there? So we had the gay revolution wasn't working on the grounds of difference and it, it worked on the grounds of being the same. I believe what's going to happen with the trans revolution is the same. It's not going to, people aren't going to be going for this endless gender identities but what they might be able to go, do you know what, fair enough you just want a sense of congruence within this male-female world. So there's this pendulum swing back to essentially the reality of the one flesh man and woman. Can you feel that, that gravitational pull towards it? Because if you put the essentially underlying drivers behind these movements together, they're clearly pointing to a distinctly Christian understanding of sex, sexuality and gender. So on the one hand, marriage is good and between two people, that's what the gay revolution won for us. And on the other hand, what the trans revolution is trying to say is that men and female are essentially different. That's what's happening at the moment. Are they or not? That's the big discussion within feminism. Is is it non-essential or essential? Are we essentially different beyond the biological or not? So if you layer these on top of each other, you recover the Christian roots of marriage a union that is essentially only possible between male and female because that both reflects the full diversity of the creator and is a sign that points to the eternal union of Christ and the church. The husband represents Christ. He takes responsibility and lays down his life for his wife. The wife reflects humanity's response to this sacrificial love by moving out of independence and into intimacy and partnership. 
So along with understanding the complex and entangled relationship the 21st century West has with the Christian faith, I also want to frame the entire conversation in the context that there are two realms, something culturally we don't understand, or if we do, we don't really know how to navigate. God is spirit and connects with us spiritually in such a way that manifests in human flourishing physically. So he created a material world, but he is spirit. Those two realms exist. However, there is also intelligent evil. I'm indebted to Michael Heiser, a theologian, for giving me that phrase, intelligent evil. Spiritual principalities and powers that are out to destroy humanity and everything that contributes to human flourishing. I'm also greatly indebted to Tim Mackey and his online classroom on Ephesians for helping me see how ideologies and principalities and powers are two sides of the same coin. We can tell when ideologies are are energized by intelligent evil because the fruit of their ideas in human experience is devaluing and destruction of human life. So you always, the biblical narrative trains us, you always look at consequences. You don't look at the thing, you look at the fruit. And you have good fruit and you have bad fruit. That's what, you're, that's what it's training you to do. And in these talks and reflection, the today is a reflection, not in any way necessarily an answer, but a reflection on all the questions, brilliant questions that have come in. What we're trying to learn how to do is to think. And I'm, all, I'm obsessed with fruit, partly because I'm strategic. I think in the terms of generations. I don't particularly think in terms of an individual's life. And I know that can be a strength and a weakness. But partly I think that is biblically how you look. You see Abraham, then you see Isaac, then you see Jacob, then you see the breakthrough, which still has complexity in Joseph. And we're trained to think generationally in the Bible. We're trained to think in terms of seeds and fruit. So, again, this is a personal commentary. Um, You know, you can critique this, and I'm not in any way claiming divine inspiration at this point. But I believe, culturally, the more radicalized vocal minority of the white identity politics movement is hijacking the very serious work of anti-racism that needs to be done. We're going to come across whether the, whether the church is behind or ahead of the times in terms of gay marriage as relationship, whether it got it right or wrong with racial justice and women. So the very fact that people often put very different areas of life experience together under one catch-all umbrella of social justice indicates this. It's, this not nuanced. Those are very, three very different areas to navigate. Justice matters, but we have to be really careful with not just lumping everything together. So I really appreciated this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I found it, obviously, hopefully, I found it challenging energetic, eye-opening, well-written. Until I got to the chapters on gender and sexuality, where I felt that Ibram X. Kendi lost his authentic voice. This, again, this is my personal reading. I don't know him. I've never spoken to him. I'd love to, and just to be interested. Did he lose his authentic voice in those chapters? And just felt he had to communicated what he felt he had to, to be on point politically. I believe this is tragic because, yet again, the authentic voices of people from all over the globe that need to be heard and understood on their own terms are being subtly silenced by a small vocal minority, I call it, of neo-colonial identity politics ideologues. And I say white purposefully because that is how identity politics is viewed by everyone else. The Chinese have even coined a term for this. It's called Baijiu, and it literally means white left. I call this somewhat ironically ideological coercion in the age of consent. For the Christian, though, our battle is never against humans, okay? So we need to know how to keep that obsessive relational connection I framed everything with at the beginning. That is how God pursues us, and that's how we pursue each other, to relational connection. Our battle isn't against humans, whatever their opinion is. It is against the intelligent evil that seeks to devalue and destroy human life, particularly babies, children, and young people, always in seductive, compelling, and beguiling ideological disguises. This is intelligent evil. This is not stupid evil. This is winsome and compelling. We are naive. 
It's hard to acknowledge that, but humans are naive. We need wisdom to rule. So this issue, sex, sexuality and gender, I think goes into the same category as every other issue. Adam, human, and Eve, life, in a garden, are being seduced by a shining spiritual being who says we can be like God. We can redefine good and evil in our own understanding. We can grasp what we want. However, we as Christians are empowered to say no, to walk past the invitation to collude with the devaluing and destruction of human life, and rather wait to receive the gift that God wants to give us in the way he wants to give it to us, trusting in his extraordinary and abundant goodness and timing, knowing this will always lead to human flourishing. At the heart of this issue, I think it's a trust issue. Do we really trust in the goodness of God and his abundant, relentless pursuit of our individual well-being? The church, the community of followers of Jesus, is a set-apart community. We're distinctly marked by the love, power, and purity of God. We should never be so culturally relevant or cool that we're indistinguishable from the world. In fact, Jesus both encourages and warns his followers when he calls us both salt and light in his teaching in Matthew 5 to 7. We are designed to be so attractive that we shine, but if we lose the very distinctions, God's love, power, and purity that enable us to shine. If we lose our saltiness, we are no good for anything. We will be thrown out and trampled on, ironically, by the very people we are trying so desperately to impress. I'm not in any way saying anything I'm saying is right here. I'm simply trying to speak from conviction and authenticity. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be salty, to be good news, to draw out the flavor of the world around us. But we're never supposed to be behind the times. We're a prophetic people. We're designed to be ahead of the times, revealing who God is to the world, his image bearers, and anticipating the new creation, the union of heaven and earth, where we're one. And that is exactly what the true church, Christians, have been in history for the most part, regarding issues around slavery and women. It is a common misconception that the church has been bad news for women and racial equality for two reasons. Firstly, very few of us know what life was actually like in the ancient world into which Jesus was born and radically changed forever. Secondly, we are rightly but slightly obsessed with a recent period of particular Western history where there has been and has needed to be a deep calling out of racism and sexism. It is absolutely fundamentally important these issues are confronted and addressed within the global Christian community, particularly the West. An example we're all aware of here, and lots of us have probably made money from living in this area as we do, is the African-American transatlantic slave trade. It was fundamentally evil. That this systemic evil took place within so-called Christian nations is an absolute disgrace. And that is precisely why, ironically, Jesus and Christians have, for the most part, been good news for slaves, women, and children. When Christ died and rose again, he awakened a global Christian conscience, which saw slaves, women, and children differently to any previous dominant empire in the ancient world. The politically and physically weak and vulnerable were not to be exploited anymore, but rather to be served and released to greatness. It was precisely through a Christian conscience, which had been awakened through Christ, that we rightly now judge all the evils of Christendom. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, institutionalized anti-Semitism across Europe, racism and sexual abuse within the church. We know that all these blots on our history are profoundly evil, not despite Jesus, but because of him. Can you understand what, what I'm doing here? He awakened the conscience by which we now judge ourselves. Before that, these things were normal. This was what life was like. This is how the ancient world operated. When he awakened a conscience, we cannot have our cake and eat it in the 21st century West and judge these things in our history as evil and then ignore or deny the reason we have come to understand them as evil. The person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So when Paul said in Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, he wasn't behind the times or slow or wrong. Rather, he was radically envisioning the dissolution of cultural hierarchies and hostilities because he was anticipating 2,000 years ago the new creation. He was well ahead of his time. We're still living into some of the, the momentum that Jesus and then people like Paul initiated. So shrewdly working with the Aristotelian household model, which I explained in my first talk on male and female, Paul didn't want slaves who had become Christians to revolt and be crucified because that was the that death sentence was what slaves received in the Roman Empire. Rather, he subtly subverts the status quo whilst protecting new Christian converts. He calls Christian masters and slave owners to account in Ephesians and Colossians. He calls slave traders in 1 Timothy 1 ungodly and sinful whose actions are contrary to the good news of Jesus. He writes a letter to Philemon not just to accept his newly converted Christian runaway slave Anesibus back without punishing him, but more so receiving him radically as a brother. And he also encouraged slaves, which constituted 50% of the Roman Empire in 1 Corinthians 7, who became Christians if they, gain their, they can gain their freedom to do so. I'm greatly indebted to the historian Tom Holland in his book Dominion for helping me see the influence of Christian history in Europe on, as he calls it, the making of the Western mind on our post-Christian values today. Biblical thinking culminated in a change of attitudes to the poor in every area of life in Christian Europe. Christians would rescue abandoned babies and children, would build the first hospitals to care for the ill and the poor, would be the first to establish education for all children, not just the wealthy. And pertinently over time, various laws were created over hundreds of years, which culminated in making the slave trading within the continent illegal and eventually to die out throughout Europe, much to the bewilderment of traders beyond Europe. For us, it was 1000 AD when slave trading was made illegal in London, for example. The horror of the African-American slave trade, with its vast scale of suffering and its excruciatingly ideologically racialized nature, was that devastatingly those of so-called Christian European ancestry should have known better. We should have known better. We weren't doing it in Europe because we had a conscience about that. That's, that, that is the absolute horror of that trade. And this is where it's critical to make a distinction between cultural Christianity and actual spirit-filled followers of Jesus, of which I mess up every day, but I count myself one of them. For it was primarily actual Christians moved by the suffering and courage of their brothers and sisters of the African diaspora because of their faith in Jesus. They partnered with them in mobilizing the modern abolition movement notably starting with the Quakers in Britain's American colonies in the 16th century. Similarly, in my first talk, I expressed some of the attitudes towards women in Greco-Roman culture. When God entrusted himself to the womb of a woman, when Jesus entrusted the first witness to the resurrection to be a woman, when Paul entrusted the most influential letter that has ever been written to be carried to and explained to the believers in Rome by a woman, Phoebe, the house churches across the Roman Empire became a place where women, as well as slaves and children, could flourish, eventually creating a world that just got a whole lot better for women. The roots of the modern suffragette movement can be traced back to the Christian faith of women and men. So yes, when the church has become politically powerful, it has forgotten it's predicated on weakness and faith and dependent on the Holy Spirit. When it has become institutional, whether in medieval Europe or 21st century America, it has colluded tragically and perhaps even unforgivably with systemic racism and sexism, and it has become a tool of oppression. We have been worse than our neighbours who do not claim to know God. But 
when the church has been a countercultural, prophetic, spirit-filled local communities of humble, servant-hearted, compassionate believers, which it has been for most of its unwritten history throughout most of the world, it has been and continues to be not just good news for slaves and women, but the best news. There are currently 25 million humans being trafficked. Christians and Christian charities remain on the front foot, working alongside NGOs and governments in seeking to eradicate modern slavery. So while I I understand that Christians may place women, slaves and Christian gay marriage all under the same catch-all umbrella of social justice, Christian gay marriage is an entirely different issue to that of racial justice and the role of women. Slaves being set free, racial justice and women partnering with men are all about a new identity. They all anticipate the new creation. There is a momentum towards freedom and partnership. The trajectory of the biblical narrative, the community of Christians, history itself is moving towards the new creation where every tribe, language, people and nation worship Jesus as one new humanity and partner with Jesus as his one unified bride. The trajectory of the biblical narrative is freedom for everyone and partnership with God for everyone. As I explained in my last talk, Chris and I would not bless a same-sex union because we do not believe it is a union. We do not believe two or men or two women can become one through having sex. Therefore, their relationship cannot anticipate the new creation, the union between the new heaven and the new earth. There is no biblical trajectory towards Christian gay marriage. It is not to be in touch for a Christian to bless a Christian same-sex union, but rather a failure to anticipate the new creation. At its deepest level, for a Christian to bless a Christian same-sex union is an act of unbelief. We don't believe God is fundamentally good. We don't believe he has our best interests at heart. And we don't believe he is fiercely for us. And we don't believe in the new creation, rather than an act of faith. In contrast, we believe a man and woman fundamentally change their status in the unseen realm when they have sex. They both retain their distinct autonomy whilst also becoming one unit. They both fulfill the Genesis 1 mandate of the creator split into male and female, ruling in partnership over creation, and they anticipate the Revelation 22 vision of Christ in the church as one ruling over the new creation. The Christian husband and wife do embody the union that is at the heart of the new creation. In this age, they are to stand shoulder to shoulder, ruling in authority in the unseen realm over the jurisdiction God gives, serving in the seen realm with compassion the last, the least, and the lost. Although we are only just beginning to taste this in the global church, this understanding of marriage is by far the most progressive expression of sex, sexuality, and gender the world has ever seen. We're designed to be a community of faith, not unbelief. A community that is distinct, not the same as everyone else. A community that is both salt and light. At its prophetic best, the church has always been on the front foot, and always will be a prophetic people designed to show the world what God is like and how Jesus seeks a partner, a bride, in his body of humanity, the church. How we walk this in this world is so complex in our cultural moment in the post-Christian West, I would say it's actually impossible in our own wisdom and understanding that ironically we are being called to do on this issue what we by God's spirit, by faith, in real moments, with real people. So I, I process this with Chris, and I've armed and awed about this for, this for, for months, but I'm actually going to share three real-life examples as a reflection of how we seek to walk this. Because in the end, God never deals in concepts. He deals with people. I've done a lot of work to protect these friends who we know and love deeply, To protect that anonymity, I've removed and changed some details. None of these friends would say at the moment they're followers of Jesus. Jesus is our role model for how we walk this impossible situation. He walked in intimacy with the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing, and he only said what he saw the Father saying. I love how this is illustrated in Jesus' healing of the centurion's servant which is a great question, actually. I'd never thought of that. So that was a, a really interesting question. 
So whether the servant was the Roman centurion's sexual concubine or gay lover or not, although there's no reference to this in the New Testament text, we know that Roman slavery did involve sex slavery. Whatever the background of their relationship, a Roman centurion would have had a lot of blood on his hands. He was in charge of a 100 soldiers in an empire that was renowned for and built on cruelty. As a Jewish citizen, subject to Roman oppression, Jesus could have used this opportunity self-righteously and in many ways humanly justifiably to point out all sorts of evils in this centurion's life. But he doesn't do that. Not because the centurion's history of violence wasn't evil, but because Jesus only did what he saw the father doing. And in that moment, the father was delighted with the extraordinary faith of this unrighteous, unclean Gentile and was simply celebrating and drawing attention to his extraordinary faith. We have to be absolutely disciplined on this issue, otherwise we become dragged down into brutal and divisive politics. We do what we see the Father doing and we say what we hear the Father saying. That's how Jesus lived and that's how we're called to live. I believe that's how Paul lived too. He talks about the way of the Spirit, the life of faith, being in touch with the Spirit, in partnership with the Spirit. So in this way, Jesus becomes a role model for how we love people in a complex, messy and broken world. The following examples I'm going to give are people we love deeply. And I didn't go in with a wise game plan. I just learned pretty quickly we've got to do what we see the Father doing and say what we hear the Father saying. We've got to be alive to the moment that we're in. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that tempts us to try to work these things out in our own understanding, even theologically, in disconnect from actual moments with God and actual people. So for many years, I've worked in various capacities with a gay man who I like and I have a laugh with. A few years ago, we were in a large social situation. I wasn't thinking about him or his sexuality. I wasn't particularly thinking about God either. I was just simply present to the social gathering that I was in. But I found myself looking at him and suddenly I was overwhelmed with God's compassion. That was it. I know it was God because I've only experienced that level of compassion in a few other occasions in my life. It was authentic, it resonated and it moved me to tears. That moment has shown me all I need to know at this stage about what the Father is doing in me and in that person and in our relationship. So it is through that lens that I navigate that relationship until, if and when, the Father wants to do or say or feel something else. God showed me how I could be with this person. It was beautiful and liberating to feel what God felt about this person. Through friends of friends, for a period of time, we made friends with a gay mother in community with others. We had a lovely time and enjoyed not only intelligent and thoughtful discussion, but good food, laughter and community. I love how Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, reflecting on her own experience when she was a lesbian of incredible hospitality within the LGBTQ plus community, she calls the church in another book that I have been recommended so many times. I'm looking forward to, oh, four months sabbatical where I get to read it, called The Gospel Comes with a Key, calling the church higher to the hospitality that it, and, and, and bringing a mirror of what she experienced in her community to the church community. That said, I was also deeply conflicted because I have this really deep concern for children's well-being. I can't explain it. I don't know if I'm idolizing a happy childhood and I'm seeing clearly or not, but I find I want small children to be given the best. It's just something in me. Culturally, we have stuck our heads in the sand regarding the natural consequences of gay marriage, Christian or otherwise. Children who intentionally from birth or their early years will never have either a mother or a father. For example, the male whose sperm contributes through IVF to a baby of a lesbian couple who decide to go down that route is never described legally or in any other way as the child's father. They are a sperm donor. And I noticed that not one of the questions I received, we were able to put a lot in, we had other questions, not one of them refers to this deeply sensitive area. 
because most gay and trans people, like everyone else, don't simply want a relationship with a significant other at some point in their life. They want to become parents. This is completely understandable. It's what it is for most of us to be human. Some people don't, but most people want that. It also means a line has been crossed. This stops being about the personal pursuit of happiness between consenting adults, culturally acceptable in the West, as I talked about in my first talk. This now moves into the realms of making decisions at a state-sanctioned level, cultural, societal level. So I'm not talking about individuals here. I'm talking about a way of life that we all collude with and are all complicit in that directly affects the well-being of other humans who do not have a voice and at the stage in their life where they are the most vulnerable. I've spent enough time, as I'm sure all of you have here in all your roles, in pastoral care and conversations to know that ideologies aside, the instinctive deep craving and longing of every human and the main cause of all our deep trauma and sense of loss is almost invariably tied up with the presence or absence, the actions or inactions of mother and father. I believe God covers it all. He is the father and mother to us all. He formed us in our mother's womb. He loves us all our life and will bring us to the new creation. But he did authorize us to minister that as humans. Whilst I do not believe we are any way saved by family values, I find family values almost worse because there's this sort of self-righteous presumption that we're somehow more righteous if we tick a certain box of how we should live. It's the Pharisee of our age. We all need Jesus to restore us. We're not restored through family values. But there is evidence to suggest, John Tyson recently cited a global youth survey conducted by One Hope, that young people who grow up in a loving Christian home overall have more successful outcomes than their secular uh, counterparts. Now, because this is so recent, this Q&R, I haven't had time to research the data or even know if there is any. There was some real complexity around data with the transgender movement because it's so emotive, this issue, that even collecting data, we all know, and I have it, is a con has conscious bias. Does it matter that the loving home constitutes two parents of either sex or specifically a mother and a father? That's the question within the global Christian community. I'm going to express here aware and absolutely upfront about my conscious bias, my current conviction in the context of my distinctly Christian worldview. I do believe that just as every human is the product of a sperm and egg, so every human thrives when they're stewarded well by the host bodies of the sperm and egg in covenant relationship. The one flesh model of mother and father. Tragically, for many reasons, most children, and there'll be people here and people who have children here who do not experience that growing up. Sometimes this is not anyone's fault or responsibility Tragic things, as we know, within our community here, happen in this fallen world. Things go badly wrong. And we are specifically commanded in James. The highest kind of praise of religion anywhere in the Bible is in James, where it says religion that is pure and faultless is this, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Because it is deeply distressing for parents or children to experience deep loss like that for any reason. That said, there is a difference between navigating the complexity of life in this fallen world and for the Christian intentionally to violate God's revealed design. Whilst I do believe God is bigger, his love covers and restores everything, I also believe humans have been given authority and what we do really matters for better or worse. For that reason, I would say that intentionally to construct family units in violation of God's one flesh, mother, father design, in whatever way we do it, is, I believe, an act of social injustice. However, as I explained earlier, our battle is not against humans. It is against intelligent evil, which I believe in this case has seduced 
the mind of the naive West with the compelling vision that it doesn't matter which sex parents are so long as they're in a loving, mutual, stable relationship. And the way we fight this battle has not changed. The way we contend for reality never changes. It's still the same. We still just continue to do what we see the Father doing and say what we hear the Father saying. So in going back to our friend, some of our conversations became about Jesus. The friend was open to prayer and we prayed and I know they were touched and received the Holy Spirit. They connected with God. It was beautiful. And at one point in these conversations, this friend said, I am gay. Is that an issue with regards to Christian faith? I looked at her and to the best of my frail capacity to hear God's voice in the moment, I sensed I simply needed to say what I could see the father doing. I set aside the gay issue and simply said what I was observing. God loves you deeply. He's clearly pursuing you with his love. You're hearing his voice and connecting with him. That's what I see is happening in front of me. I think it's helpful at this point to reflect on the terms and letters, LGBTQ. Q, for example, is quite a complex term. It's changed. It now is a, is a way of expressing resistance to the binary notion of sex and gender. Queer theory critiques traditional binary approaches to sex and gender. I've used these letters in my talks and in the term, and I've used terms like gay and trans because we live in the world we live in. And we need to communicate in a way people understand. It's important that we respect people and we use the language that people understand. However, as a Christian, I don't believe God looks at us, any of us, through letters, labels, terms or words. These are horizontal words identifying how we relate to ourselves and to one another. They are but our primary source of reality is not horizontal. We're not chemical accidents kept alive by a dying star doing our best to get through another day. Our primary source of reality is vertical. That's our conversion to the reality of the vertical towards God. We are primarily children of God. We are primarily defined in relationship with him. He is the center of reality and we orbit around him. Just as the earth cannot make the sun orbit around it, so we cannot make reality orbit around us. We orbit around God. He is reality. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are given a new name and a new identity, which will last through death into the new creation. All other names and identities are essentially unreal because they die with us. God is reality and the lens through which he sees us. Is who we really are. So we gently and respectfully critique Amnesty International's current phrase, I am who I say I am, by moving away from self as the centre to God as the centre. I am who God says I am. So whilst I will use and I will continue to use language like LGBTQ+, if that is helpful and how people define themselves and how we need to communicate. I believe that when we become followers of Jesus, we have such a fundamental change of identity. The New Testament authors use radical terms such as rooted in words like metamorphoso, from which we get metamorphosis, new creation, new nature, that these letters, terms and labels fall away. If this process feels to you like you or someone you love is going to die, then you've got a handle on it. It's a Gethsemane moment. And any of us who follow Jesus for any length of time, we've had our Gethsemane moments. We trust Jesus to raise us from the dead. We trust him with that process which takes a lifetime and is only complete in the new creation. And we only ever operate out of intimacy with him, both in the way we see ourselves and in the way we see others. God alone sees clearly. He doesn't see people as straight. 
gay or trans, but as the people he thought up at the beginning of time and who he sees through into the new creation in a new resurrection body beyond sex, sexuality and gender. He is the one who sees clearly and he defines all people as his precious, beautiful child. As Christians, we want to be in alignment with how God sees because what God sees is reality. I made friends with a trans parent. This trans parent has a male partner. The trans man had given birth as a woman and was transitioning, having breastfed. At one point, they were considering whether they stopped transitioning and held off to have another baby or whether they would continue. This person was enthusiastic socially, was engaging and was responsive in conversations about God's love. In one social situation, I found myself with a friend in a hijab and halal compliant food on one side and this transparent family unit on the other. All of us enjoying friendship, food, laughter and community together. In all its mess and complexity, this is the kingdom of God breaking out, breaking our walls down, reducing us to the fullness of our humanity connecting us deeply in love with each other. Because, of course, we see ourselves and others in the forms of hijabs and trans parents. But he doesn't. He sees humans, image bearers, his children who he formed to be loved. And we get as church to go on the adventure of getting to build community, seeing the most unlikely of friendships forming, of seeing his kingdom come, of tasting heaven on earth, How do we do it? At every stage, we seek to do what Jesus did. We operate out of intimacy with God. We do what we see the Father doing. We say what we hear the Father saying. The church is designed to be both courageous and compassionate. According to Steve Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, we need to live with the end in mind. I've sought to cast a vision essentially to live for the person of Jesus with everything within us. He is the most compelling vision, way, life that you will ever, ever encounter because he is the way and the life and the vision. We live for him in community with other passionate, wholehearted believers, whether we are single or married or anywhere on that spectrum. As the famous saying goes, if you want to build a ship, which we want to here, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. So I'm going to give you some of our end that we have in mind. These are excerpts from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and I saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be, with, be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes Take the free gift of the water of life.